our look at joy, joy uh, as an obvious part of this season that we're in, those three letters J-O-Y emblazoned everywhere, along with its ubiquity, along with its prevalence everywhere comes an inevitable watering down of what it really means. Just because it's written on an ornament that's hanging on your tree doesn't mean that it is immovably fixed in your heart and in your mind. It doesn't mean that the joy is real. And so we're looking at joy in one sense to try to reclaim it from popular culture and to put its roots back in Scripture where real, lasting, meaningful joy is found. Now, I told you when we began this study how I began this study and just looking at at all the different uses of joy in the Bible. So I looked up joy and just that word. I could have looked up rejoicing. I could have looked up joyful. Just the word joy as it gets translated in our scriptures, over 200 references. And as I read through them, I tried to see what themes were duplicated, what themes were often repeated What is it about biblical joy that makes it relevant and real? And so two weeks ago, we looked at the first of those themes that bubbled up to the the top of that list, and that was that joy is found in God himself. Joy not is something that he gives us as much as it is joy is something he is for us. He himself is the source and the substance of our joy. And then last week we looked at how joy is found in his word. It is found in how he has revealed himself to us. Brings us joy because of how life-giving and life-changing his word is for us. And so now this week a third theme, and it it appeared frequently in the scriptures. This relationship between joy... And sorrow. Now, at first, I was thinking just in terms of joy being found on the other side of sorrow, right? That there's an order, a progression, if you will. Uh, There's very often sorrow first, and then joy is experienced later. And that's certainly true. That is there. But the more I got into this this week, that's just part of the story about sorrow and joy. Yes, sometimes joy comes after sorrow, but it is also biblically true that joy can come in the midst of sorrow, and joy can come from the sorrow. Joy can come out of the sorrow. The the sorrow can actually produce the joy. It's not just a roadblock before we get to joy. It can produce the joy for us. And so that's the gist of what we're going to look at this morning is this relationship between sorrow and joy, and how joy can come after, or in, or from the sorrow. I've been managing each week to narrow down the number of scriptures for you. There are three printed in the worship folder today. They're the the first three that I sort of hung my hat on on this initial survey of joy in the scriptures. And so they're the springboard into the topic for this morning. And so I want to read those now to help us get started. So if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? May our 
hearts express the reverence and the authority to God's word that our physical postures are demonstrating now. Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Later, Psalm 126, this is one of the psalms of ascent that, uh, that God's people would recite and sing back and forth to one another as they're traveling toward Jerusalem for Passover or for one of the feasts. Psalm 126, 5 and 6, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And now from the prophet Isaiah chapter 9, a a very famous chapter in Isaiah for this time of the season. We've already had part of it in our Advent candle lighting, part of it in our call to worship, and now the first three verses of this chapter for us here. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They shall rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray that he blesses it and uses it in our lives now. Father, take this your word. Take the truth about joy and its relationship to sorrow. Help us to understand it. And Lord, change us by it. Help us as we see the gospel as it relates to sorrow and joy. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to rejoice. Change us and transform us, even in these moments, for your glory and for our joy. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. As we start exploring this relationship between sorrow and joy, I want to do just a bit of housekeeping first. Number one, what do I mean by sorrow? Well, I mean a lot by sorrow because the Bible means a lot. The Bible has a lot to say. It's a broad category as far as we're using it this morning. Lots of fairly synonymous terms. And we saw several of those just in those verses that we just read together. Weeping. Tears, gloom, anguish, darkness. We could turn other, to other scriptures and see fear, pain, grief, and suffering. All right? So all of these things are, are wrapped up in this broad category that I'm speaking of this morning that I'm going to try to primarily just say sorrow to refer to so I'm not bouncing all over the place. But the Bible speaks of joy having a relationship to all of these things. Now, the other item of housekeeping has to do with where the sorrow comes from. 
What kind of sorrow are we dealing with as it relates to its origin? Well, there are many different sources of sorrow that Scripture reveals, but almost all of them can be boiled down into one of two places. We have sorrow because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And we have sorrow because we are broken and fallen. Almost every sorrow we experience can be put into one of those two categories, right? The the world is not as it should be. It's broken, right? There's sickness, there's disease, there's death, there's disaster, right? All of these things out of our control that we're dealing with and that bring sorrow into our lives. But sometimes we or someone else is the source of our sorrow, right? Sometimes it's our sin. Sometimes it's our folly, our rebellion, or the sin of others against us. And so this morning, I'm not going to dig into uh, the specifics of the different types of sorrow, or am I going to try to differentiate between sorrow that comes from the broken world or from the broken us. Neither of those is my focus this morning. The focus this morning is that God is sovereign over all of the sorrow. Regardless of where it comes from, regardless of what type of sorrow it is, he's sovereign over it all. He's accomplishing his good purposes for us in and through it all. And one of those is that we have joy. He's committed, as we've discussed in weeks previous, he's committed to our joy. Jesus wants your joy to be full and complete. Jesus wants his joy to be in you. And rather than the presence of sorrow somehow thwarting that plan, God is determined to use even our sorrow to bring about that joy that he desires for us. And so that's why I don't hesitate at all to have a a sermon about sorrow in the week of Christmas. It might seem antithetical sorrow and joy, sorrow and Christmas. But the clear witness of Scripture shows how deeply related they are. And it's literally, this relationship is literally all over the Scriptures. And so that's the first point of the outline that you find in your worship folder. Where do we see this relationship between sorrow and joy in the Scriptures? So think about that just for a second. Where do we first see this relationship? Where does this relationship between sorrow and joy first show up in the Bible? How about the very first time sorrow is introduced? In the garden, right? When when Adam and Eve have thought that the fruit would somehow bring more joy to them than God himself would, and they rebel against God, sorrow enters. It rushes in. It rushes in in the form of fear, in the form of shame, But no sooner has it entered the world than we also get a promise of joy. This first little fledgling, tiny seed of a promise of joy that we see in Genesis 3.15. This very first seed of the gospel. God is speaking to the serpent, and he promises the serpent that one of Eve's descendants far down the line, will defeat and will conquer the serpent and the sorrow that the serpent's temptation brought into the world. You will bruise his heel, God tells the serpent, 
But that descendant of Eve's is going to crush, is going to bruise your head. Sorrow will not be permanent. Weeping for the night, joy in the morning. And that is the pattern that we see again and again and again in Scripture. Uh, We certainly see it in the discipline and exile of God's people because of their ongoing stiff-necked rebellion against their good father. He brings discipline. He brings a severe discipline. Painful. A sorrowful discipline. And yet, all along, the whole way through, in the middle of the discipline, in the middle of the exile, we have promise after promise after promise of joy. We read one this morning from Isaiah. God's prophet speaking to God's people, right? We read but one of dozens of examples out of Isaiah. They'd been in deep darkness and anguish, but joy was promised. Now, here's what's really interesting about Isaiah. He gives us a great picture of what I mentioned to you earlier about this relationship between sorrow and joy. We've got joy coming after our sorrow. We've got joy coming in the middle of our sorrow and joy coming through or as a result of our sorrow. When we look through Isaiah and all that he writes and all that he speaks to the people from God, we see him giving promises of joy before they're disciplined and exiled. He's giving them promises of joy, prophesying them to them while they're in exile. And he's speaking to them about the joy that will come after they return from exile. And, and the whole way through, regardless of if he's speaking before or middle or after, he speaks of that joy with great certainty and as if it's already a reality when it hasn't even been experienced yet by God's people. I've mentioned to you before, these great prophecies that we see in God's word often have two fulfillments. There's one more immediate fulfillment that the prophet is talking about, and there's one that's more ultimate and long-term and later. Isaiah promises joy to God's people that will initially and partially be realized when they return from exile, when their captivity is over, but it will be fully and finally realized when Messiah comes. When the Lord returns to Zion. Isaiah speaks often of Messiah very often refers to him as God's servant. Behold my servant, Isaiah 42. Speaks of the suffering servant who will come. And so, of course, another place that we see this relationship between sorrow and joy is in in the birth of of our Savior, what we celebrate this week. It's another perfect example of, of joy that comes in relation to sorrow. Now, maybe even this week, even outside of our normal reading plan. Maybe you would spend some time in the Gospels, reading of the events leading up to and including Jesus' birth. Maybe you'll read of Mary in Luke chapter 1, where she's told about what's going to happen and how she's greatly troubled. There's sorrow for Mary when she's told about this. 
She's very afraid. The angel has to tell her, don't, don't, don't be afraid. He tells her that because she is. He tells her that because her heart's full of fear. This is not initially good news for an unwed teenage girl. Her life is, is destroyed by this news. It's upended. Same for Joseph. All his plans. Getting married, settling down, having a nice little life, a nice little family, are completely blown up in an instant. I read this week, it was someone's devotional pondering, and I don't remember who's to be able to give credit, but the, the, the pondering was, was this. If Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem for the census because that's where Joseph was from, that's where his kinfolk were. Then why were they struggling for a place to stay? Why not just stay with family? And so this devotional pondering that I was reading was, well, gosh, were they, were they not allowed to stay with family? Were they perhaps shunned by family because of this very unfortunate situation they found themselves in. No, you're not going to stay here with you and your pregnant teenage girlfriend. This was a tough situation. There was sorrow here. No, no doubt, lots of pain and lots of tears. But of course, we know that immense joy comes in and through and on the other side of what is happening. Think about how the angel announced it that night. Right, to some very scared shepherds. Behold, the angel said, I bring you good news of a great joy. And the shepherds visited Mary and Joseph and, and the baby and, and told them about all that they'd witnessed, told them about all that had happened, about the angel and about his pronouncement, about the sky filling with the choir of angels. And what was Mary's response to all of this? That night, after Jesus has been born, after these shepherds have visited and told them all this, it says in Luke 2 that she treasured up all these things in her heart. There was joy for her on the other side of this. There was treasure. There was delight in her heart. Tears, weeping for a moment, but then joy. So that's some of the where do we see this in Scripture. Now I want to move to the why we see it. There is a very clear relationship that we see in Scripture between sorrow and joy, but why is it there? Why is it a part of the, the fabric of our existence? Why is it that joy will very often come in, through, and from our sorrow? It's not just random. It's not just the way things happen to be. It goes back to that suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. A frequent objection that people will give when you talk to them about their belief in God, about their faith in God, a very frequent objection is, well, I just don't know if I can believe in a God that would allow such pain and such suffering in this world. Right? If there's a God, why doesn't he do something about that? 
Now, that's a, that's a good question. I guess that's a fair question. But it's also a question that, that reveals how very little they actually know about the God that they're questioning. Because one of the most important things to know about God, something that very quickly pulls the rug out from under that line of argument and question, is to know that we have a God who voluntarily, willingly involved himself in the suffering of his people. We have a God who entered into our pain and our sorrow. In fact, he suffered and felt pain and was full of sorrow for us. And if you would just stop for a moment to let that sink in, that's insane. That should be to us, were we not so used to it, beyond belief. I don't know how familiar you are with world religions. But please name another religion in the world where the God of the religion suffers for the sake of his followers. Give me one. Many, many examples of the opposite where the little g-god of Religion X requires the followers to suffer for the God. See, people ask that question. They raise that objection. Well, why doesn't God do something? And they imagine that he's standing off in a corner with his arms folded and either a scowl on his face because he's angry or a yawn because he's indifferent. When in reality, he took on flesh. He entered into the world where the pain and the suffering and the sorrow happen. And the brutal and harsh reality is that after that night that Luke in his gospel describes, with the birth, with the angels, with the shepherds, after Jesus was born, come true the prophecies of Isaiah prophesied long before Jesus was born told us what would happen to that suffering servant who was a baby and grew up to be a man. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But see, we didn't get it. We didn't understand that's what he was doing. So we see him doing all that. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. We say, we see what he's doing and we say, what a loser he must be for all this to be happening to him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we were healed. Sorrow 
grief, rejection. This is why the relationship between sorrow and joy is such a huge part of life as we know it. it, it it's foundational. Right? Our joy, our most ultimate and amazing joy, right? So remember two weeks ago, joy in him, joy in the Father, the joy of knowing him, the joy of being at peace with him, that joy is only found on the other side of the sorrow and pain of our faithful Savior. So that relationship is borne out again, right? Joy on the other side of sorrow, but our joy comes on the other side of his sorrow. That's the gospel. Now, let me mess with your minds just a little bit and hopefully mess with your hearts too. Give you something to chew on this Christmas week. Right? Why did Jesus do it? Why did he do it? Why did he go through all of the pain and the sorrow? The writer to the Hebrews tells us why. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus found his joy in suffering for us. He found his joy in being obedient to the Father's will. He found joy in suffering for and drawing all those to the Father that the Father gave to him. In a very real sense, we are the joy that was set before him. That is staggering. He did it that he might have us as his treasured possession. Friends, if we could wrap our minds and our hearts around that truth, it would change our lives. It would change our relationship to sin. We would hate it so much more. If we could wrap our hearts and our minds around that, around the reality of Jesus finding joy in getting us, it would blow the doors off of whatever your wimpy, anemic definition of Christianity might be. Of trying to be a good person, trying to live a good life. That's why the writer to the Hebrews mentions this, the joy that was set before him right after a sentence about laying off sin, dealing with sin. How are we going to do that? We're going to look to Jesus. We're going to think about what joy he found in us when he endured the cross. Third point on your outline. All right, so we've seen where it comes, some of where it comes in the scriptures, a little bit of why this is a reality. Now, third, why is it so important 
that we get used to this idea of sorrow being related to joy. Now, this is not to say that we need to go out and pursue sorrow. Right? Don't go looking for sorrow. Trust me, it will find you. But why is it so important that when sorrow does come, we also have joy in view? First reason is so that we don't become disillusioned and bitter and discouraged and despairing. Right, when sorrow comes, it's so that we, we don't get caught in the trap of thinking, well, this isn't fair. I shouldn't be suffering like this. I shouldn't have to have sorrow like this. Not if, not if I'm a follower of Jesus. Shouldn't I, shouldn't I get something a little better for having joined his team? Don't I deserve something? Well, friends, you know all that we deserve. We deserve far worse than we get. The only things that we deserve by rights are death and hell. Everything else this side of that is, is a gift and a, and a blessing. So that's the first importance that we, that we have this as a settled understanding in our minds is so that we don't get bitter, so that we don't despair, so that we don't have this deserving mentality. But if we also understand this relationship between sorrow and joy, perhaps we won't be so quick to shrink back and to even seek to avoid sorrow, right? See, my fear is that many of us are so sorrow-averse that we're trying to live lives that don't involve any risk at all. We're not going to do anything dangerous, even for Jesus, because there might be sorrow involved. There might be loss. There might be pain. Which is a real shame if we live our lives that way. Because the sorrow and the suffering and the pain that often come our way is a tremendous grace of the Lord. tremendous grace of the Lord. He uses it. He changes us by it. it. And that is all over Scripture, too. We could look at a ton of different places. Uh, just recently in our, in our Wednesday night Bible study in Romans, right? Romans chapter 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We find joy when we suffer because we know that God's going to do something with that. We know that he's going to use that suffering to give us endurance, to give us character, to give us hope. He uses the hard things to grow us, to sanctify us. Sometimes, many times, often, he uses the sorrow to give us more of himself. A richer, fuller, deeper experience of his presence, of his provision. Sometimes the really hard things we experience are made sweeter by the knowledge of our Father that we gain in the process. Through the pain, through the tears. I love the, the, the Spurgeon quote. He said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. How beautiful. Can we say that with him? God will 
use our sorrow and our grief and our pain. One of the things that he'll also do through our sorrow, through our pain, is he will work to make sure and certain that we're not finding our joy anywhere but in him. See, sometimes the sorrow, sometimes the pain is to get our attention, to help snap us out of our folly, out of our idolatry. Where have we been trying to find life? Where have we been trying to find joy apart from him? Sometimes he'll use pain and sorrow to grab us by the shoulders and to shake us and to say, no, it's not there. It's in me. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, and it deals with some of those objections about how can a God exist if there's so much pain and suffering? And so he deals with the problem of a good God in the presence of evil. And he has this to say about pain. Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes, friends, we need rousing. Sometimes we need grabbing by the shoulders. Now, I'm not sure where all of you, where each of you is this morning. Perhaps some of this helps you make sense of a recent sorrow or recent grief or recent pain. I know some of you are in the middle of it right now. Or maybe you're preparing for the sorrow that is very likely just around the bend. Either because of our fallenness or because of this broken world that we live in. But my prayer is that God would help establish the reality of this relationship in your heart and in your mind. That he's going to bring joy. He's concerned. He's committed to your joy. And sorrow and pain doesn't thwart that commitment. It very often fulfills that commitment to bring you joy after your sorrow or in the middle of it or even out of it. May God grant us the grace to to realize it and experience it. Father, would you help us in all of our times of sorrow Number one, to never doubt your love and your goodness, but to to remember how our Savior took our sorrows, took our shame, suffered for us in our place what we deserved to suffer. And Father, help us to see your goodness, your promise, again and again and again to bring joy out of darkness. Deep darkness, anguish, pain, tears. Help us to experience you even in the midst of it. Help us to know you through it. And as we consider, as we look to Jesus, and we remember how he endured all that he endured for the joy set before him, oh, Father, change us by that radical truth of the gospel. 
change us and transform us, we pray. In Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen.